We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash lawless. Just go to Indeed.com slash lawless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed com slash lawless terms and conditions apply need to hire you need indeed hello sunshine i'm alexi lawless and welcome to the state of the union podcast where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red white and blue colored glasses this episode we'll be talking jesse marsh u.s men's national team roster balagun under 20s greg vanny soccer vocabulary donna summer and so much more but first joining me as always my friend my colleague my guiding light David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, how you doing on this uh, Monday, May 22nd, 2023? And welcome back. You are in studio for those that uh, are just listening and can't see. Thank you. I'm doing well. I'm happy to be back. I almost forgot what this studio looks like. Well, uh, we missed you, but I'm glad that you had some time with your family. I know how much that means to you. And it sounds like uh, from the uh, last couple of weeks that you did some wonderful things with them and uh, on your own. And it was a successful and fun, uh, fun trip for you. Have you watched anything? I will say that last night uh, I had long gone to bed. And at one point I came downstairs and uh, my wife was just sitting glued to the television for one reason, which I know you're probably going to mention. Last night was the penultimate episode of Succession. It was an absolute barn burner, and it set up a very dramatic finale, which will be this upcoming weekend, the final episode ever of one of the great TV shows of all time, which means you can start binging it. Thank you. Thank you. I cannot, uh, I cannot wait to catch up with, uh, with everybody. But again, I'm not going to be beholden to the man, and I will be able to binge it and watch it at my leisure or as fast as I uh, possibly want. Um, anything else uh, that you see? I'm very excited for this. Uh, tomorrow night, Tuesday night, I am going to the Arrow Theater in Santa Monica to check out uh, a documentary called If These Walls Could Sing, which is about the Abbey Road Studios where the Beatles recorded and many other famous musicians yeah. through the years. Oh, that's awesome. I, didn't, I hadn't heard about that. Okay, so it's a special showing of it or something like yep. that? Oh, all right, you got to tell me how that goes because I'm, I'm, now I'm, to I'm completely curious and I want to uh, see it. Let's see, it's on, oh, it's going to be on Disney Plus probably it's, uh, at some point, I would think. So I'll be able to see that there, but you'll have a you know, cool experience actually going and seeing it with a bunch of other people. So let me know how that goes. Uh, let's see, what did I watch? Two things. Um, one, uh, Donna Summer uh, documentary on HBO, Love Me Some Donna Summer. And it's an incredible backstory with Donna Summer. Um, it's called Love to Love You. And it goes through her entire career, obviously. Wonderful singer, if you don't know who Donna Summer is. And really had a, um, you know, a heyday through the, you know, through the 70s and, and uh, 80s, especially when it came to disco. And uh, just to hear her backstory and even to see footage of Donna Summer at one point living in uh, Germany and doing a German production of hair and singing in German, all that kind of stuff. It was um, it, it was amazing. And to see her her progression, wonderful, uh, you know, not, not the greatest documentary or music doc out there, but still um, fun. The other thing I saw, uh, another documentary, Anna, Anna Nicole Smith uh, on Netflix, uh, You Don't Know Me. For those that don't know Anna Nicole Smith, she was, you know, both a very famous um, uh, model and then an actress and then also was right at the, the cusp of all that reality show stuff. Although her reality foray was much more about, unfortunately for her, uh, and she had she had problems, um, you know, when it comes to, you know, uh, substance and all that. But it was much more laughing at her as opposed to with her. Uh, when you talk about you know, the Osbournes and, and that kind of stuff, but still a fascinating exploration into where she came from and the the difficulties that that she went through, and you know how ultimately smart she was in, in terms of wanting how she wanted her brand to exist out there. So that's a uh, that's another one. Like I said, that's on uh, on Netflix. Uh, Mossy, before we before we start this off, and you know, unfortunately, if you if you talk about soccer, which we do, 
this too often becomes something that you have to talk about. Uh, incredible uh, sorrow and sadness and obviously condolences uh, to the people of El Salvador and certainly everybody that was involved in yet another stadium stampede in the soccer world. This one happening down in San Salvador, in El Salvador, at Estadio uh, Cuscatlan. Uh, down there. And unfortunately, uh, at, at this point, uh, at, at least 12 people, unfortunately, died. Uh, and it's again, it's just masses coming together and the inability of security to first off anticipate it and then in the moment control what, uh, what was going on and just some horrible, horrible scenes. So uh, we are thinking about our friends down in El Salvador that have been affected. And, you know, it affects the whole world and obviously the soccer world out there. And to the extent that uh, that you can control it and do these types of things when it comes to security and anticipate this stuff, it has to be done, whether it's in El Salvador or any place else in the world. So uh, we wanted to get that uh, right up front uh, and let us uh, let you know that we are thinking about that. All right. Ready, uh, ready to light this candle, my friend? All right. We are going to start off with, uh, you know, the continued rumor mill, I think, of what is going on when it comes to the U.S. men's national team, right? Yes. Um, reports in the last few days that Jesse Marsh has emerged as the front runner to be the next U.S. men's national team coach. Some places even suggesting it's a foregone conclusion that he'll get the job. What do you make of it? I think that there is. Well, first off, I think there's absolutely uh, fire where there is smoke. Uh, and this is some some smoke. We've already talked about the connection that Jesse Marsh has with Matt Crocker, the new uh, sporting director over there. And at time at a, a certain point, we talked about how he even wanted to hire him over there in the EPO when he was working. And so there is a, a I think a respect and like I said, a connection. This should not come as any surprise. This is not only a high profile coach that is out there, but obviously his American connection makes him incredibly appetizing, I would think, in this moment, um, and that he is available <laughs> makes him that much more attractive. Uh, there are certainly detractors out there when it comes to Jesse Marsh, and they will lob criticisms, some fair, some not, uh, whether it's his style of play, whether it's his track record in terms of his, uh, in terms of his success, or whether it is not aiming high enough, and really that what that comes down to is not big enough of a profile coming up to 2026. But ultimately, if this happens, as I said, I think that there is some fatigue out there, and I, I raise my hand and claim plenty of it in that I just want a warm body, honestly. Uh, yes, I want a good coach for this team, and yes, 2026 is paramount and maybe that much more important to make sure you get this right, but every day is another day wasted. However, when it's Jesse Marsh or whoever this summer who gets named, we will go on and we will, I think, forget very quickly about this, about this wasted time. The interesting thing is if Jesse Marsh doesn't start until after the, uh, the Gold Cup, that to me is insane. If it's Jesse Marsh, then don't, don't mess around. Name him as the coach, get him in, start him right now, and hit the ground running. And it, it doesn't, you know, if you... If you suck in your first couple of weeks or if it doesn't go well in the Gold Cup or something like that, nobody's, yeah, we'll scream and yell to a certain extent. But there's the recognition that this is who the guy is going forward. You don't have to qualify for the World Cup. So I think that's where I am right now. I, whether it's Jesse Marsh or anybody else, I don't care. Just name somebody. Uh, gauging the reaction on Twitter, Jesse's approval rating seems to have gone down with U.S. fans. At one point, he was the guy that the Never Burhalters were pining for. And now a lot of people seem underwhelmed by this choice. Uh, wh why do you think that's that's happened? Um, I think that there are many that like to you know look well first off and, and which is fair look at his record and look at his I guess at times spotty and lack of success th that he has or consistent consist. And again, I think a lot of it goes back to the thought that there was going to be a Mourinho esque type of appointment. And Jesse is not, nor um, who knows when he would be considered in that vein. And absolutely, the fact that he's American plays in this in a strange way to some, not to everybody, but to some, uh, to, to some against him and, and what's going on. Also, if, in, if this turns out to be true, all right, don't think for a second that this isn't part of the, you know, the old boy network. 
Jesse Marsh is as much a part of American soccer as anybody else, and certainly as Greg Berhalter. Jesse Marsh has worked at the Federation before. Jesse Marsh is of American soccer. He was born through it. He came up through the ranks, whether it's playing youth soccer, whether it's playing high school soccer, whether it's playing college soccer, going on to play in Major League Soccer, and then obviously that pathway that he you know, very smartly recognized and focused when it comes to, uh, comes to Red Bull. He has plenty of connections. He has plenty of history. He has plenty of baggage out there when it comes to uh, uh, when it comes to his his past in the game. And again, I don't care. I just want a good coach. He is a good coach. He is a warm body right now, and we need to get to work. And if it's Jesse, fine. But I don't understand if it is Jesse, why they're thinking of waiting until they, uh, later in the summer. Maybe they have good uh, and legitimate reasons. To be fair, it's not just people on Twitter. I've heard the likes of Taylor Twellman and Hercules Gomez say that hosting a World Cup is such a unique opportunity, especially with this generation of players and that it called for U.S. soccer to reach out to a Mourinho or a Carlo Ancelotti. Worst thing, they say no, and then you can circle back to a Jesse Marsh. But uh, people wanted uh, U.S. soccer to take a bigger swing and try for a more ambitious hire. Okay. Uh, and so there is this perception that, once again, they did not cast a wide net, did not undertake an exhaustive search. They just sort of focused on one guy who's pretty good, but... Uh, a guy you could always get, and and that's who they're going to hire. So why is Jose Mourinho better than Jesse Marsh? No, no, no. I, I, listen, we don't have to go down this okay, rabbit hole. But, but, we know, but, we know. You you think the way people judge coaches around the world is filled with biases, and and you reject sort of the premise that some big name foreigner that's coached all these top European clubs is better than Jesse Marsh or more equipped for the U.S. men's national team. But you would agree, perception wise, absolutely, Mourinho yep. feels like a more ambitious hire. It's sexy. It's big name. By the way, it would also cost, and so there is an economic part of this uh, uh, part of this equation. And I'm not saying that again that relationship with with Matt Crocker. If he believes that this is it and this is going to happen you know all the screaming and yelling about the process and whether whether it was fair okay well this is yet another person that is part of the system if you will and again i have no problem with it because i think jesse marsh is a great coach and but also you know uh i think Greg Berhalter is a great coach. I think Jim Curtin's a great coach. I think Patrick Vieira is a great coach. All of these uh, types of uh, coaches. And it is a great opportunity. Jesse Marsh is available. And I think that this certainly, like, like many coaches, and in particular American coaches, this has to be a dream and maybe a dream come true, especially, as you mentioned, with 2026. So... If this is to be great, I just think it should be now as opposed to uh, as opposed to as opposed to waiting. So, well, as of now, it is still Anthony Hudson. The U.S. has this Nations League semifinal coming up against Mexico. Uh, all four semifinalists named preliminary rosters. The U.S. named one with 60 players. That's a lot. It's going to be significantly cut down. So we don't want to read too much into it. But some of the more notable names. Tyler Adams is on the list. Tim Ream is not, which makes you think that in Adams's case, there is, there is actually a chance he might come back from injury and be able to play in that match against Mexico. John Brooks is on the list and Folarin Balogun. Uh, those are the names that jumped out to me. Yeah, I mean, well, first off, you kind of just, uh, you know, paper it, right? <laughs> you know, with the recognition that, you know, you have these 60 names and obviously you're not even going to come close to calling them in, but you want to protect yourself. And also, you know, U.S. soccer knew that this was coming up, and so they kind of had to go through the whole Balogun thing to make sure that it was public because they probably knew, hey, we want to make sure that he is on this uh, on this list. The Tyler Adams thing is is interesting, and maybe it's just if he's possibly ready, then great. If he's not, no harm, no foul. But you don't want to have him say, hey, I'm ready to go, and not have him include him on the list. That would be a, a clerical error and a big one, a big one at that. But like you said. All the usual suspects. It'll be interesting again. I guess if it's Anthony Hudson, uh, and it looks at this point to be Anthony Hudson until potentially Greg Berhalter or somebody else comes in later on, what the mix and match and what the balance is uh, between these between these two teams, how much of a mix and match there possibly can be, and then ultimately who looks good through the summer. And again, you're looking good to Anthony Hudson as opposed to somebody who's kind of sitting on the sideline. And yes, that person can be watching from the sideline, but it's not, as, it's not the same as going in day in and day out and seeing that player in training, seeing that player in the, in the hotel, seeing who that player is, which ultimately has to be the, uh, the assessment for a coach that now is going to be assessing the group brand new. If it's not Greg Berhalter, okay, then whoever's coming in, and obviously not uh, Anthony Hudson, 
these players are going to be new to this person. And they are going to have to very, very quickly get a feel for who these players are. And look, Jesse is, knows some of these players from, from the youth time, but they have, they have changed as people and as players going forward. So uh, the sooner the better at getting somebody in. Uh, Mexico, incidentally, uh, no Chucky Lozano on their list. He's battling an injury right now. Uh, no Chicharito. There was some thought that with Tata Martino gone, Diego Coca coming in, that Chicharito might get a new lease on life there with Mexico. Uh Players like Hector Herrera and Hector Moreno are not on the list because they're going through a bit of a transition. They want to pick younger guys. Uh, the big names that jump out, Santi Jimenez, who's had a very good season with Feyenoord. Uh, Tecatito Corona, who just came back from a lengthy injury himself. Edson Alvarez. So uh, pretty good list. We'll if, see. if there is a time, I mean, there's no perfect time, but if there is the, the closest to perfect time to actually do that and make a break and rely on young players and kind of, you know, bypass or shut down that previous generation, this is it. Because you don't have to go through qualifying. You have this next three years at, without the pressure of having to get results. And so it doesn't surprise me that Mexico is doing that. It also wouldn't surprise me if the U.S. going forward does some of that too. And some of that old guard that we look at as, you know, even playing, you know, for example, I don't know, Tim Ream, who was arguably one of the best players that we have had over the last year, Right. But and, you know, he's hurt right now, but you might say, OK, Tim Ream right now is really good. But do I really see him being a part of 2026? And you may say, thank you for your time, Tim Ream. We have moved on. Although he's the only one. The U.S. has such a youthful squad. Yep, but there's exactly. not that much of an old guard no, no, to exactly. phase out. But for, that Mexico is right. doing that. It makes sense. And also no Andres Guadal. He just retired from uh, international play. Uh, I mentioned Balogun is on the list. Uh, he scored this past weekend in a 2-2 draw between Hans and Angers. <laughs> oh, my God. Do it again. Do it again. For Hans me. and Angers. Um his 20th league on goal of the season, he becomes the first American to score uh, 20 goals in a top five European league. A fact that he tweeted out himself, so he seems very excited about this milestone. Hey, look, it's the most difficult thing to do in the game and that we, and I say we as Americans, now have the potential of having that goal scoring and consistent goal scoring translate to the national team. Yeah. That's, just, that's awesome. We should get excited about this. It is interesting that in, in what's ostensibly been a disappointing Yanks abroad season with Balogun committing right at the end there, it now really spruces it up because his achievements are part of that discussion as well. So it wasn't such a bad Yanks abroad season. After all, you did have a player set a great milestone becoming the first American to score 20 goals in a top five. Well, league. but also, as we mentioned, there's going to be a lot of movement and a lot of change. And I think that's reflective of some of the, well, there's not, it hasn't been a whole lot of good, like you said. There's been a whole lot of uh and meh and even some bad out there, which is reflective of why I think a lot of players are going to be on the move. And hopefully we're sitting here next year in a very different place talking about not just one player, albeit a, uh, you know, a potentially really, really good player. And we'll talk more about Balogun later on the show. Part of me thinks he committed to the U.S. just for that tweet, the same way Tim Watley converted to Judaism <laughs> for the jokes. <laughs> Uh, but speaking of youthful Americans, uh, next order of business, the under-20 World Cup is off and running in Argentina. And the United States, a very nice opening win, 1-0 over Ecuador. Jonathan Gomez with a stoppage time winner. The U.S. the better team throughout, so they were good value for this result. And they're now in good shape to advance from a group that also includes Fiji and Slovakia. Yep. I mean, I have told you and our, uh, and our uh, listeners and viewers how I feel about youth teams and how I feel about watching developmental types of situations. It does not hold much romance or interest for me. I watched the game, you know, I watched uh, this and again, in the past I've watched and it's made me excited and it's made me proud of the potential out there, but it's not something that I would choose to do if I didn't have anything, uh, have anything else to do. But th that being said, getting the winner, winning in a World Cup uh, situation for this next generation that I do feel is going to ultimately challenge even some of those young players that you were just talking about, even as young as the U.S. men's national team is right now, there's a whole other generation coming up. And yes, you can see them on the stage right now, but I don't blame you and I share your views if it doesn't float your boat as much as others. So when you go to a restaurant and it's one of those where the kitchen is out in the open, you don't care. You don't need to see the food being made. You just care when it's put in front of you. I just want to make sure that it's done and that it's good. I don't care how it actually got there. It doesn't impress me and it doesn't change my, uh, my ultimate experience of it. No, I don't care. 
Uh, next order of business, uh, Major League Soccer, another action-packed weekend. Uh, the biggest match was the Hell is Real Derby, Cincinnati, with a 3-2 home win over Columbus. They jumped out to a 2-0 lead, uh, Lucho Acosta with a pair of goals. Columbus came storming back, made it 2-2, but then Moreno got the winner. So a big victory for these Supporter Shield leaders. Yeah, and uh, I mean, sometimes these rivalry games don't live up to it, but one, you're dealing with Two very good teams, obviously the interstate uh, rivalry when it comes to Cincinnati and Columbus and what that has now become over there in Ohio. And I think it has started to take on interest even outside of uh, Ohio and partly is, you know, because of the quality of the teams and the environment. I mean, that Cincinnati stadium is just whatever they've done. And sometimes it's just serendipity or whatever. But um, maybe that's that's not fair to the people that designed it. And having been there, it is an awesome stadium. And it is constantly packed and it's constantly rocking. And this Cincinnati team is giving people a reason to scream and yell after (laughs) years of uh, futility there. And so this was, I think, the most entertaining and fun game of the weekend when it comes to MLS. Yeah, Cincinnati, eight wins out of eight at home this season. They have more home wins in their last 11 games there than they did in the previous 57. So it's remarkable how that's become a fortress for them. Uh, let's see some other uh, some other scores you want to go through. Yes, or, uh, things that stood out to you. Philadelphia three 0 home <laughs> win over New England. Gazdag twice and Carranza supplying the goals. Just um, what the doctor ordered for their Jim Curtin and company. Best performance of the season. Yep. Uh, there's a sense now that they've put the CCL disappointment behind them and have kind of gotten their mojo back MLS wise. They they looked unionish, right? Uh, in in what we have expected, where they're just they're ruthless in that environment. They smelled the opportunity and and not for nothing but you know this is this is still the new england revolution uh the new england revolution and uh you know one of the what we think are elite teams in the uh in the league and they just decimated them uh a couple of bonus ones vancouver with a nice win over seattle the suddenly struggling sounders have dropped three of their last four mls games and four of their last five in all competitions and that was at uh uh in vancouver right yep okay two nothing there yeah so that one stood out to me uh Congrats to the Loons on going to Portland. Speaking of Cascadia up there and getting a uh, getting a result, LAFC continues on. They left it late against uh, San Jose. I know you want to t- talk about that one before we uh, before we get to that because there were there were some it was some really interesting results. Um, the battle for I guess would be Missouri, and I had to explain to my kids about having lived in Kansas City and that <laughs> you know half the city is in Kansas, half the city is in uh, Missouri, and. Uh, evidently when it comes to Missouri, and at this point, if you're sporting KC, you might not want to claim the Missouri part of it after the result. 4 nothing for St. Louis at home against uh, sporting KC. Uh, the Galaxy and Toronto both lost. They're in last place in their respective conferences. We're going to save that for the Ask Alexi segment. We got a question about the Galaxy, so we'll use it as a jumping off point to discuss the plight of those two teams. But the but plight of them, and again, it's this up and down type of situation because uh, also Phil Neville uh, and company over there in uh, for Inter-Miami, uh, Orlando came in, another interstate rivalry type of thing, and uh, took the three points, winning three to one in Miami. Uh, we'll end this segment with Liga MX. Uh, the final is set. It will be Tigres against Chivas. On our last podcast, I mentioned that Tigres and Monterrey had played to a 1-1 draw in the first leg. Tigres then won the second leg 1-0 at the Estadio BBVA. Sebastian Cordova with the goal. He scored in both legs. Um, in the other semifinal, America actually won the first leg 1-0 away. Zendejas with the only goal. Amir Hours after I uh, diminished him on this podcast, the word is the America coach played that clip for him and motivated him in that match. Uh, but uh, Chivas stormed back in the second leg. They won 3-1 at the Azteca. Cisneros, Mosso, and Orozco with the goals. So 3-2 aggregate triumph. They advance. It will be Tigres against Chivas. First leg Thursday night at the Estadio Universitario. Second leg Sunday in Guadalajara. This time next week, we'll have a new Liga MX champion. Uh, you know, we talked about Tigres. They built this super squad, were touted as a juggernaut, had a very tumultuous campaign. Three different managers got knocked out of CCL, which is what they really wanted to win. Mm-hmm. But they have a chance to salvage it all here by winning the Klausuda title. Will they? Uh, I think so, yes. Yeah? Yeah. You got them? Yeah. All right, good. Um, anything else uh, when it comes to uh, stuff that uh, we want to talk about, either MLS or, uh, I guess, North America related? That is it. That is it. All right, let's take a quick break. Uh, and when we come back... We do have some other stuff around the world that happened and maybe is going to happen. So uh, don't go anywhere.
Okay, welcome back. Uh, all right, listen, let's take a trip around Europe here. And usually we we kind of hedge and start over there at the EPL, but we actually have a potential for something interesting and different uh, when it comes to the Bundesliga. And we've talked throughout this this season about just waiting for Bayern Munich to, you know, reclaim their uh, their their place at the top, and to go on and do what they have done over the last decade uh, consistently. And that even the challengers, when it comes to Dortmund in particular, aren't quite there. And even when they're given a gift, they kind of throw it back in people's face. And yet we are faced now, Mossy, where the final game of Bundesliga comes next week. And if Dortmund win, they actually win the Bundesliga title. And I don't think that we necessarily thought we were going to uh, be here. And at some point, we always said Bayern's going to kick on, and they never ultimately did. And they pissed it away, and now it is in the hands of Dortmund. Now, Dortmund is really good at pissing things away, too, so it's not secured. But um, ultimately, you think they hang on. Uh, yes. I mean, to get everybody caught up on this past weekend, Bayern, as you mentioned, finally blinked. They suffered a 3-1 home defeat to Leipzig. They led this game 1-0 in the second half, thanks to a goal by Serge Gnabry, but then Leipzig scored three unanswered, including a goal by midfielder Conrad Leimer, who's already agreed a deal to join Bayern next season, and he might have cost them a Bundesliga title this season. One of these strange situations that seem to happen so often in Germany. So that opened the door for Dortmund. They capitalized. 3-0 away win over Augsburg. Sebastian Holler with two goals. What a great story How that's about been. That? I mean, that is incredible. And then Julian Brandt got the other. Gio came on in stoppage time. So, yeah, Dortmund with a two-point lead with one to play. I mean, so so first off, the Holler situation where, you know, nine, I think he's, he gets two, nine overall. And then, you know, you talk about, you know, the guy who missed time uh, with cancer and coming back. That's, that is incredible, by the way. And and to do as what we would constantly say is so difficult to do it and to score big, big goals, uh, big, big goals like that. And they looked, you know, I've said this before, though, so maybe, you know, fool me once, but but they looked confident and they looked able and they looked uh, hungry to finish this off. But <laughs> there's always that there's always that. But and it wouldn't surprise anybody if if. If next weekend they screw the pooch and <laughs> and Bayern just kind of back their way into yet another title. Yeah, the fixtures in the final round, uh, Dortmund home to Mainz, Bayern away to Cologne. Uh, there's a fun little U.S.-Mexico Twitter debate, assuming Dortmund handled their business uh, this weekend. Uh, who played a bigger role in their team's title, Chucky Lozano with Napoli or Gio Reyna with Borussia Dortmund? Chucky Lozano, I think. I think so. I mean... Yes, Gio came on at different times and, you know, was a was a super sub. And at times Chucky did that, too. But I I just feel like we were talking about Chucky more times just being involved, whether it ended up being goals or, or, or ultimately being successful. You know, that that at times happened and at times it didn't. But, yeah, I mean, I, I think Chucky, what do you think? Uh, Chucky felt like he was higher on the depth chart of his team. But actually, if you look at the numbers, they speak to Gio actually having made a bigger impact in terms of goals. So Just in terms of goals? Yeah. All right. Well, you're a, a goal elitist. As we've talked about, though, Gio had such a strange season. <laughs> yeah, that it's, I, it's, it's, it's strange. It's strange. I mean, and look, let's, let's give Mexico something to be excited about. <laughs> <laughs> this is, I'm benevolent here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, you know, for the good of uh, our friends to the South there, let's give them something to be excited about. Uh, and then in England, the title race is officially over. It ended in anticlimactic fashion. On Saturday, Arsenal suffered a 1-0 defeat away to Nottingham Forest, which meant Forest clinched safety and meant that Manchester City clinched their fifth title in the last six seasons, which meant on Sunday it was a party atmosphere at the Etihad. They were able to put out a B team, which for them means... Uh, Argentina's World Cup winning starting <laughs> center forward leading the line, Julian Alvarez, who promptly scored in their 1-0 win over Chelsea. Um, I think we both want to have a go at Arsenal here. Let me go first. Yes, go. My, mine will be a little bit softer than yours, okay. but nevertheless. Um, not winning the title is not the issue here. As we talked about, they were never in as great a shape as it seemed if you factored in the remaining fixtures and games in hand. So it was entirely possible for Arsenal to only stumble a couple of times have Manchester City win all their games, which they have, 
and pipped them at the end. It's, it happened to Liverpool twice in the last five years. It's what I thought was going to happen here. And had it played out that way, Arsenal's reputation would have been intact. I don't think there'd been anything to criticize. The story would have been all about how great Manchester City are. But that's not what happened. Arsenal completely imploded. They've won just two of their last eight games. They've had a dreadful end to the season. And they made this so much easier on Manchester City than anyone ever imagined to the point where City clinched the title with three games to spare. They're going to finish like 10 points clear of Arsenal. Somebody who didn't follow the season and just looked at the table is going to think this was a wire-to-wire job like what Napoli did in Serie A. So I'm sorry. The fact that it played out that way does take some of the shine off this Arsenal season. I don't feel as good about it as I thought I was going to. And if Arsenal fans are defensive about that, I'm sorry, but that's just the way it played out. But I don't understand now. You're contradicting yourself. It, then it then it is about winning the title because ultimately they're going to finish second, right? So there should be this incredible celebration. They should be on the double-decker bus riding through the streets, the return to glory. So it is about them, uh, to quote uh, Piers Morgan, bottling it. I looked that one up. And yes, they bottled it. It was in their hands, and but, but you keep saying, "Oh, you know, the strength of schedule or games in hand and all this, all, all this kind of stuff." But the only reason that anybody cared about Arsenal this year was because of the potential of winning the title. It wasn't about finishing second. It was like, "Oh, Arsenal's so great, and we can't wait to finish second. No, it was, "Oh my gosh, not only are they great, but they should win the league." And there came a point where Arsenal fans and non-Arsenal fans alike looked at Arsenal and said, "Oh my gosh." Nobody's going to uh, to stop it. I'm not saying there are people out there that didn't say, oh, this is going to come crashing, uh, come crashing down. But your safe money was still on Arsenal finishing it out, given the track record of what they uh, of what they had done. And they pissed it away. They bottled it. In America, we would say they choked. It's absolutely a choke, given the talent that they had, given what they did. And when they faltered, it wasn't losing to Man City. It wasn't losing to the other elites out there. It was pissing away points against teams that in the context of this season and the quality and talented, uh, talent that they had displayed were vastly inferior opponents again this weekend. And I know going on the road is, is, uh, is, not, uh, is not the easiest thing to do. And, you know, Forrest uh, is, a, is, a, uh, is a quality team. But either Arsenal is a good team, potentially a great team, or they're not. And I think what they did was enough to qualify them for an elite team, a great team in the context of this season. And that they pissed it away is on them, and it's all relative to them not winning the title. Uh, We're going to talk later on on the podcast about English terms versus American. <laughs> I can tell bottled is one that you like. You don't you don't mind using that one. I yeah. I mean I, I do it for effect, but <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a good one. I, I'm not saying that there aren't uh, you know wonderful phrases out there. We'll talk more about that later. Um, second big talking point to come out of this weekend, and we don't have to delve fully into this one today, but I just want to tease it, is the Pep Mourinho debate is red hot again. That's always been the managerial equivalent of Messi versus Ronaldo. And as Pep stands on the precipice of a treble here, which some people think would elevate him to GOAT status, Mourinho folks are saying, wait, slow your roll on that. Our guy is about to win a second European trophy in a row with Roma. He won the Conference League last season. They're in the final. I say about to. They do face Sevilla, who are the kings of the Europa League. So that's like a 50-50 final. But nevertheless, you say, well, that's the Europa League versus the Champions League. But the, the very fact that he's about to win that trophy with Roma underlines what is the big argument that Mourinho supporters use, which is that Mourinho has actually shown an ability in his career to drop down a level and have success with teams like that. He also won a Champions League with Porto early in his career. Well, with, with Pep, there is this Phil Jackson element to his career where it's always been big clubs with stars and lots of money. So that debate is raging on Twitter the last few days. And let me ask you something. Uh, you know much more about college basketball than I do. All right. Is there a iconic type of coach in history whose iconic status and legendary status is relative to winning NIT or something like that? I, 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 like that Mourinho is going to Europa and doing that. I can recognize that that's quality and you can only work with what you are given as a coach. Even Pep would tell you I'm only as good as the players that I have. And by the way, every place that Pep has gone, he's had arguably the best players in the world to do it. And it still takes skill and talent to be able to do that. But the the success of uh, of Mourinho at Roma relative to the NIT tournament, the Europa thing, I don't think anybody cares about that, nor nor should they. But, but okay, even not making the Roma thing the linchpin of your argument, but just looking at their career side by side, could you make an argument that Mourinho has demonstrated an ability to do more with less 
while there still is this question hanging over how Pep sure. would fare at a, at sure. a not elite club? Because, you know, Porto, I think you could argue that. Uh, and now with uh, with Roma, I mean, Mourinho loves to talk about finishing second with Manchester United it was an incredible feat and, you know, incredibly proud moment. And, you know, he loves to downplay the quality they had, but he had plenty of <laughs> plenty of talent. So Mourinho, like Pep, oftentimes and the vast majority of times has had more talent than anybody else. And that's that's an incredible advantage in terms of uh, winning, in my professional opinion. Yeah. Last thing I'll say about this and we can move on. I know it sounds crazy to say about a manager like Pep was won 30 something trophies and is about to win his third Champions League title. But to me, his legend is not so much about winning. It's more about the style of play of his teams and the influence he's had on the game. It almost feels to me like half the time he's not even that fixated on winning. It's just a natural consequence of working at big clubs and getting them to play unbelievable football every week. You can't help but win trophies along the way. With Mourinho, the winning is the thing. Like, I think you can sum up his career by going to his Wikipedia page and reading the honor section. Like, sure. oh, that's why he's a great coach, because he's won this and that. If somebody 50 years from now wants to understand why Pep was an important figure in the game, I think just going to his Wikipedia page and reading the honors and saying, oh, well, that's why, because he's won all those trophies. Well, no, you'd be missing kind of an important part of it. So I guess to what degree you think that factors into this conversation? This is, this is a wonderful, beautiful, evergreen type of conversation. You can have it not just in soccer. You can have it in other sports. I mean... You know, there's, uh, for example, a, um, a basketball player that, you know, plays at the highest level and plays in incredible facilities, has incredible resources at their disposal. If you were to take that basketball player who is not arguably is a star within the sport playing at, quote unquote, the highest level and put him into a street ball type of situation. He may look very mediocre and average in that type of situation. And you may say, how, how is that possible? Who is a better type of player? It's all subjective in, ter in terms of what you are, uh, what you're doing. But, you know, I think Pep absolutely will go down and will be argued as the greatest of all time. Uh, and certainly if you hit, uh, it's the treble here. And I mean, I don't know how your money and your safe money can't be on Pep doing that uh, this year. But he has had plenty of advantages that lots of great coaches out there have not had at their disposal. A manager who thinks he's every bit as good as Pep and Mourinho is Sam Allardyce. Yes. Um, but his lead side suffered defeat this past weekend, 3-1 away to West Ham. They actually scored first. Wesson McKinney with an assist off a throw-in to Rodrigo. Right. But then West Ham scored three unanswered. So... Leeds remain in the bottom three heading into the last weekend of the season. We don't know if they're 18th or 19th because we're taping this on a Monday morning. Leicester play later today against Newcastle. So we'll see how that result goes. But nevertheless, Leeds will have to win in the last weekend to have any chance of staying up. The good news for them, I mentioned this on our last podcast, so I'll reiterate it. They are home to Tottenham, which might be the fixture you'd most want right now because that Tottenham team has given up and is a disaster. So I actually think Leeds have a real chance to win that one. Really? <laughs> I mean, I, I you just... I don't want to go back to that well of a, okay, it hasn't been a great season for Spurs, but there's still quality. I would rather go to the well that you're playing a team that is just not good or you think that you are still on par with when it comes to the overall talent. Not a team that has better talent, but this hasn't lived up to that talent because on that in that moment, you don't want them coming good and there's plenty of, uh, of talent on that field. So look, if they're going to be saved, it's going to be a miraculous type of situation and... Big Sam will have done it, but you know I'm not putting any uh, any money on it. Which means that a lot of these players, including the American ones there that we focus so much attention on, are going to be looking for uh, jobs elsewhere. Even if they're saved, they still might be looking for jobs uh, jobs elsewhere because they're going to be uh, going to be changes come the summer. Uh, Everton home to Bournemouth in the last round. Leicester, who I mentioned, are away to Newcastle today. Then they are home to West Ham in the last weekend. So. All of, all of them have winnable games, so it means to see how this plays out. I Who can't steps wait. Up it's going to be fun. Them. It's going to be fun. And look, this is, you know, this is the, the romance and the excitement and the entertainment of, um, well, now the top of the table is much more for who finishes top four, but the bottom of the table and the relegation type of excitement uh, that, is the, that is created. And, you know, the angst and the ups and downs uh, of the flow. So we'll be watching next weekend. Uh, we'll end in Spain, where the issue of racism, unfortunately, reared its ugly head again this past weekend. Uh, Valencia claimed a 1-0 home win over Real Madrid. But the big story, uh, Vinicius was subjected to uh, a lot of racism at the Mestalla. We know he's been dealing with this all season, but this incident really seemed to affect people. Everyone from Neymar to Mbappe to Rio Ferdinand 
to uh, Brazil's President Lula were tweeting about it. There's images of Vinicius being reduced to tears uh, when the chants were going on. And he was so agitated that later on he got into a huge scuffle and got himself red carded. And he was so frustrated afterwards, he, he intimated he might have to leave Spain if this issue isn't resolved. The La Liga president, uh, Javier Tebas, while acknowledging it's a serious issue, he seems very intent on pushing back on the notion that he hasn't done enough so far. And so he actually got into a back and forth with Vinicius on social media about it and tried to repudiate Vinicius for suggesting that La Liga hasn't done well enough to, to deal with this issue. So I don't know. It's uh, In Spain, it's, it's all anybody's talking about and, uh, and elsewhere in the soccer world right. as well. Yeah. I mean, you know, you mentioned that Vinicius Jr. in particular and individually has had to deal with it now on a consistent basis. And we've talked about this now a number of times uh, through the year. And even in his, um, uh, you know, in the, uh, I think it was Instagram, the, where he put out uh, a statement, if you will. He talked about, you know, this is a country that I love. This is a country that has given me so much. And yet, as a Brazilian, we now look at Spain and Spain in totality. Is it fair? He, I think he recognizes it's not fair, but you are a reflection even of individual things that happen, even if it's individuals or a group of people. And, you know, I think he's smart enough to understand that a group of assholes in a, a stadium uh, at, a, at a soccer game aren't necessarily representative of the entire population of Spain. But those are the images and those are the messages that go around the world. And I think he is he is warning yet again. Should he have to warn yet again? No. But he is warning yet again that this is this is the perception now of not just Spanish soccer, but of Spain. And so I think that whether people watch La Liga or not in Spain, I think there has to be a real understanding that this is this is a mark. This is a mark on Spain as a country and as a population, not just on Spanish uh, soccer, just not just on La Liga. And so it has to be dealt with as such. Easy for us to say, a little more difficult to actually do it because, as we talk about all the time, people within a group setting will do things that they won't do things face to face, that they won't do things individually. And so other than just saying, all right, there's no more fans, which is killing the golden goose and at times, you know, killing your uh your business that you have, you know, what do you do? Now, there's plenty of security and technology to identify as many people as possible and get them out and never have them uh, come back. But it's it's whack-a-mole, unfortunately, in this situation. So I don't I don't know what the answer is. Uh, the only thing I'll say, this notion that it's one or two people, Valencia peddling, that we've identified the guy and he were going to expel him from, ban him from life. I mean, we're, we're, we're not blind. We can see the video. It's like entire sections of fans. So, I mean, this lone gunman theory of making it all about it was this one isolated guy. I mean, that's just not the case. It's not reality. And it also goes back to, you know, something we talked about, you know, the, the fans make the game and they make the environment. But this sense of entitlement, and we've, we've talked long about how the fan groups and the fan bases oftentimes associate themselves with, with politics and with you know, different stances and you know, some that are you know, you know, incredibly militant and you know, uh, uh, beliefs that have nothing to do necessarily with the actual soccer, but they manifest within these organizations that have ulterior motives or bigger notions as to what this group ultimately represents. And it's much more than the actual kicking of the ball. So that has to be dealt with and acknowledged and rooted out to the extent that it, uh, that it possibly can be. But again, I don't, I don't know what you can do other than just completely shutting down the games, not having fans. I mean, we, we went through the, the pandemic and it fundamentally changes everything about the game and the experience when you don't, you don't have them. But, and, you know, we, it's, it's a much smaller, I'm not saying it's not serious, but it's much smaller in terms of the, you know, the goal kick chant that we, that we talk about. And so you find people and you punish people and you do all this stuff, but it doesn't necessarily curtail or curb the actual behavior. And so I, you know, human beings are going to do what they are going to do. And they're, as we said, much more prone to do things in an actual group. And so maybe you, I don't know, I mean, you, you, you like to have people self-govern and to, do the things and do the right thing in those in those situations. And oftentimes when you do it, you'll find that there's many more people that believe it that are just, you know, too intimidated, too scared or involved in that type of group think uh, that happens when you are in a group where you do things that you wouldn't normally do as an individual. Uh, that is it. 
All right, listen, let's take another break. And when we come back, uh, it's time for Ask Alexi. So uh, we got some calls and some questions. Don't go anywhere. Okay, welcome back. It's time for Ask Alexi, that part of the show where you send in your questions, your comments, concerns. Use that hashtag Ask Alexi or hashtag Mossy. Or you can call us uh, at our State of the Union podcast hotline, which is 657-549-2297, 657-549-2297. By the way, if you do send in a question on any of the uh, social media platforms, our handle is SOTU with Alexi. Mossy, what do the uh, folks want to know this uh, episode? Uh, first up, we have a voicemail. Let's take a listen right now. Hey, Alexi. Hey, Mossy. This is Angel from Virginia. I've talked to you guys a couple of times on uh, the Lonely Hearts uh, pod on the on Twitter spaces. But anywho, uh, my question is, um, do you think the as a soccer uh, fan base for the United States, do you think we're overhyping Balogun? Um, I understand he came from England. There's all this hype around him about, you know, being such a great player. But, I mean, do you really think he's going to perform to the level everyone expects him, or is he going to be a flop? Thank you, guys. All right. Uh, thank you, Angel from uh, Virginia. So, for, first off, by the way, he's talking about the uh, Lonely Hearts Soccer Club, something that I have done over the years at different times uh, on Twitter spaces and, and that kind of stuff. And maybe I'll, we'll do some more uh, more of that. It's fun. It's actually interesting uh, interacting with folks in a, in a very different type of dynamic than what we're doing here. But... Um, to his to his question, and I think that this is something that people have thought about over the last couple of uh, weeks as this as this information is um, seeped out and now has become a reality. And I do think that you know whether it comes from Freddie Adu, there is a little reticence to um, to hype or to overhype. Now, to his question, are we overhyping him? Maybe. Um, but it's okay. I think it's, uh, again, I, I think I mentioned last episode, I don't want to rain on anybody's parade. This is, this is sports. This is part of sports is at times being irrational. I don't think that we're being irrational in terms of the excitement and the positivity associated with this player, especially for a position of need and somebody who has consistently showed that at a high level, he can score goals. But it doesn't necessarily mean that it is going to work for the national team. You know, I've, I've over the years of many, many times said form is fallacy. Well, this player from, from a form perspective at his club, I don't think you can get any better right now. And when he comes into the national team and by all accounts, he's going to come in at some point this summer. Uh, I think people will be very excited and a lot of focus will be on this player and rightfully so. And that's, you know, that's a that's a good thing. We're not going to break him. And as we continue forward, we need to be confident um, in being okay with hyping. And yes, maybe to a certain extent, overhyping. By the way, we would not be the only com- country or culture that uh, that does that. And we're not going to break him. And, and just because, you know, he has a less traditional path than, say, a player that, that grows up in the United States and plays in that type of system. Also, we shouldn't be afraid of breaking them. Because I said before, we have now introduced pathways and given resources to player at, players at such a young age that that is what they are trained from a very young age to do. And part of their training and part of you know, growing up to be a professional soccer player is being able to handle the other 22 and a half hours. And a lot of that other 22 and a half hours is people talking about what the expectations are. And, you know, some people hyping and some people, yes, overhyping. And, you know, I mentioned Freddie Adu or, you know, back in my day, Steve Snow was a great goal scorer who didn't ultimately translate to the full national team level. And it could be for any number of reasons. And it could be on the field or off the field. It just doesn't always happens. So until we actually see Balogun on a consistent basis, and by the way, even if he does come into the national team and starts scoring, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to persist. And it doesn't necessarily that he's going to get that consistency. And, you know, I, for example, you know, years ago, um, and when we were talking to producer Sean, he thought that, uh, wh- wh- who was the guy that, uh, that uh, Sean... Yeah, Aaron, uh, Johansson, remember? He was going to be, he, he was all on board that train. And we've been on trains before, the Pepe train. Gringo Torres, Francisco, uh, uh, Jose Francisco Torres. I thought that he was going to be better. And when I say better, 
more impactful from a national team. This is all about the national team, by the way, than, than he ultimately was. So it doesn't always work out. It doesn't always translate. And that form, yes, it can be fallacy ultimately when you get to, uh, get to the national team. But in no way should anybody, including myself or anybody else out there, not be excited Yes, at times over the last couple of weeks, I have tried to provide perspective and I have tempered my my thoughts on this player until he actually runs around on the field. And maybe, you know, maybe that comes with some sort of you know age and wisdom having seen before where it hasn't worked out. But it's not it's not because I'm scared that I'm going to break him by putting too much pressure on him. If he can't handle the pressure then he's not the player that we thought he was anyway. He can certainly handle the pressure and he can certainly handle the expectations and the heightened expectations that we have for him. And yes, even the overhype that is inevitable to happen when you're dealing with a player like this. Aaron Johansson is my go-to whenever Mexican fans are a bit too excited about how many goals Santi Jimenez scored for Feyenoord this season. I point out that, you know, Aaron Johansson had like 20-something goals for Azed Alkmaar one season in the Eredivisie. So, um, but one quick question on Balogun. Uh, watching his clips, he's a very good penalty kick taker. Um, Nations League semifinal against Mexico, the U.S. earns a penalty. Who takes it, Pulisic or Balogun? Is there a seniority there? It's, no, it's Pulisic, I think. I mean, unless he is... You know, <laughs> wanting to hand it off to for some bigger cause or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's right now Christian Pulisic is the penalty kick uh, taker for the uh, for the national team. Uh, by the way, Julian Green's another one that kind of it didn't quite live up to it. I'll be you know he scored a, a goal in the World Cup, but wasn't that type of player that his club situation indicated that he should be? And again, just I'm just cautioning and saying. Just be careful. And if it doesn't work out, it's it's, it's okay. It's just could have been a, a number of different reasons. But you're hedging your bets for a guy that is scoring a lot of goals and is scoring in league uh, and doing it on a consistent basis, especially for a team that, look, beggars can't be choosers too. It'd be one thing if we had guys that were just banging them in and we already had plenty of depth and talent, but we don't. So look, if you got an American passport right now, and you're scoring goals into a soccer net, chances are we're going to take a chance on you. And don't blame us if we get a little excited when there's somebody doing it like this. And to go back to my previous point, a reminder, two years ago, Nations League final between the U.S. and Mexico. U.S. won 3-2 in extra time. Pulisic scored the winner from the penalty spot. Um, we also have a Twitter question. Um, while the LA Galaxy supporters are all over Klein, should there be any smoke around Vanny at this point? Nine points at almost the halfway point of the season, or would the optics of him being the problem be worse for a Klein slash supporters dynamic? Yeah, we were going to mention this when we did our MLS segment, the latest defeat 3-0 away to DC United. We keep trying to find what is rock bottom for this <laughs> team. <laughs> they, yeah, they say, yeah, uh, the, the folks over at the Galaxy say, hold my beer. We can uh, we can uh, go much uh, lower than this. Yes. I mean, not not smoke. There should be fire when it comes to Greg Vanny. Greg Vanny, by the way, keep in mind, is not just the head coach. He is also the sporting director at the Los Angeles Galaxy. And there are certainly things that happened before Greg Vanny. And there are certainly things that the Galaxy is being punished for, whether it's Chris Klein individually or as a, um, as a, uh, as a team that the Galaxy is being punished for. And you know, breaking of the law and cheating ultimately, and whether it's the money that they're being paid or their inability to uh, be involved in transfer windows that affects the ability for Greg Berhalter as the sporting director to do what's going on. But that only gets you so far, okay? It, it'd be one thing if you looked around this team and said, there is not enough talent to compete. This is not the vintage Landon Donovan era, Bruce Arena juggernaut. This is not the early... Um, uh, you know, 1990s, or well, I guess it'd be the late 1990s type of galaxy. This is a, but this is also not the worst galaxy team in terms of the collection of talent. It is just not performing. And that falls on Greg Vanny. And so he can wash his hands all that he wants, but this has been a failure so far. And I, but I, I don't doubt that if and when the restrictions are lifted and going forward, if Greg Vanny is still around, and that's a big if, and it should be a big if. And I think Greg Vanny, if he was honest with himself and honest with me, he would tell me the exact same thing, that his seat is as hot as anyone's and it should be. So it's not about smoke to your, uh, uh, to your question. It is about fire. 
And there is a fire underneath Greg Vanny's seat going forward. Because at this point, you've thrown everything against the wall. What can you do to change it? We all know you can't fire the team. So the only thing left now for them to, to, uh, to when I say them, I mean the Los Angeles Galaxy, to, to try is to, is to fire Greg Vanny and or fire uh, Chris Klein. I'm not sure if that is ultimately going to happen. But if Greg Vanny is just sitting over saying, ah, not my problem, I'm washing my hands, then something is really rotten at the Galaxy. I don't think that's I don't think that that, uh, that is the case and I don't the optics of him being fired without Klein being fired. Yeah, that would probably not go over great for a lot of people. A lot of people just on principle right now think that uh, the that Klein and look, I think it's getting to the point right now where the Galaxy just needs to clean house and start again. And I'm not saying that, you know, the players aren't uh, aren't at fault. Ultimately, it falls on the players here. But as I said, you can't fire all the players going forward. And they take one step forward and they seem to take two steps back. So they didn't just go to D.C. and lose. They went to D.C. and they got their ass handed to. And nothing that Greg Vanny or anybody in that coaching staff is doing is changing the outcome. Uh, so the Galaxy last in the West. Greg Vanny's former club, Toronto, last in the East. They're a mess as well. They lost to Austin this past weekend. Jassy Zardes with a late goal. Uh, Bernadeski came out afterwards and spoke about problems with the team. They seem disorganized to him. So yeah, yeah, that's a that's a problem when he's talking about tactics and <laughs> talking about you know the uh, the problems at Toronto FC. So you got you got Bob Bradley on the hot seat. As I just mentioned, you got Greg Vanny on the hot seat. Um, I, I still think that that Peter Vermes is on the hot seat, although he's clawing his way uh, his way out, and he and rightfully so, I think, continues to be on the hot seat. Um, and then. You know, Chicago's already made the change. I do think that Neville continues to be on the hot seat. And then, you know, probably, you know, a Robin Frazier uh, right now. Those are the ones that I think are blazing hot. And, you know, that's not going to change. And they'd be the first people to tell you that it comes with the territory. And until and unless they are they are able to find a way to win, that's the only thing that solves it is winning games. And they are not winning, not just enough. They're not hardly winning any games, and that's why they sit mired at the bottom of their uh, uh, respective uh, standings. That is it. All right, let's take another quick, uh, quick break, and when we uh, come back, we'll finish up the show with my one for the road. Okay, welcome back. It's the end of our show, and at the end of each and every show, I give you my one for the road, and, you know, I get into my, uh, my Twitter spats, my back and forths, and I enjoy them. I'll, I'll, I'm not going to lie to you. I enjoy going back and forth, and I I enjoy debating. And uh, so I got into one this past week. That's it is kind of evergreen, and you know it's kind of I wear this on my sleeve. And that comes to as you mentioned earlier in the pod, you know the vernacular and the vocabulary involved in soccer. And uh, I had my friend over here Oz and said, "Can you elaborate on why, as a pro American?" who's played around the world, soccer versus football is such a touchy subject. Yeah, I absolutely can. Um, the deliberate and at times the, or I guess the deliberate use and the non-use at times is absolutely a trigger for some. And for different reasons and on both sides, it comes with baggage attached and it often leads to assumptions. It often leads to perceptions. It often leads to judgments, some fair and some not. And some, like I said, kind of wear the words that we use kind of as a badge of honor. And yes, some, and I will be the first to raise my hand, wield it like a weapon. And some out there just don't really care. But it is part of the conversation, and it is real. Um, a lot of this came from someone saying uh, in this conversation that they purposely use words. For example, instead of uh, you know, instead of saying football, you say soccer. Instead of saying soccer, you say football. Match, game, pitch field, boots, cleats, all of these different things. And look, I grew up saying soccer, game, field, cleats, with the understanding that there were plenty of others around the world that didn't. But most of us growing up in the U.S. 
that those are the words that we uh, that we used. And so it, part of this conversation came from someone saying that they don't use soccer, for example, but they use football. And it's out of a a sense of uh, respect in that, you know, I, I will quote this here. The speaker knows what he or she intends to communicate and makes it easy for the listener to also know. And OK, I, I understand that, but it has nothing to do with respect when you are doing that. You are purposely using, for example, like we said, football and pitch and match and boots and mate. And the list goes on and on instead of soccer, instead of field, instead of game, instead of buddy or whatever, because you are guarding against being ridiculed and or discredited or let's be honest, ignored. And I get it because I you know, I want to be accepted. I want to fit in. I want to belong. But it is all performative BS the way that I look at it. And a lot of it comes from that insecurity that we that we uh, that we talk about. And so, yes, I fully recognize. And I told the story last uh, pod about, you know, FIFA wanted me to call it football. And I was adamant. No, I'm going to call it soccer. And I certainly could have called it football. And when I called it soccer, everybody knew what the hell I'm talking about. But I love the fact that if and when I say it, as I said, on both sides, it is triggering. So for people that hear that, it's like a, it's like a dog whistle. Immediately, you're not credible. Immediately, you're, for the most part, let's be honest, American. I know soccer is said at different places, but for most part, it's that ding, 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 ding. This is an American talking about uh the game that I know and love, and therefore it at times um, softens and at times it completely disqualifies ultimately what you're saying. And I refuse to accept that, so much so that I will lean into it and I will demand that I use these words that I grew up in and that you, <laughs> that you deal with me relative uh, to those words. And I... I remain incredibly proud of doing that. And I don't want to have to change. And I don't change. And again, this is not about, you know, going over in another country and culture and living over there and picking up words. All right. Now, <laughs> for those that, uh, that know, for example, my good friend Brad Friedel, um, he came back from playing over in, in England with, a, with an English accent, and it was hilarious, all right? And we busted his balls about it. And it doesn't happen to everybody because Casey Keller did the exact same thing and didn't change his accent one bit. But you remember years ago when Madonna used to speak with a British accent in this affected type of way? Because, you know, she's a performer. And again, it was all performative. But I laughed at it. And a lot of people laughed at it because you're from Michigan, OK, <laughs> so never, ever have I ever felt shamed or ashamed of using these words that I recognize are not used around the world world when it comes to soccer. But by now, when I talk about soccer, everybody in a country or culture that calls it football knows exactly what I'm talking about. So it's not about, you know, making sure there's no confusion. It's about this is what we call it. And it's okay. And it doesn't mean that you are any better or worse because you call it uh, because you call it football around the world. And so, yeah, I do lean into it. I do use it. And again, comes from my hands up, recognized at times. I know insecurity uh, and the inferiority complex that we talk about all the time. But you know, this is this is our version of the beautiful game. And in our version of the beautiful game, we call it soccer. And you know, you've been around where one of your, sorry, one of your buddies starts saying mate and starts saying football and starts saying all. And it, it's cringy, man. It's cringy. And I don't, I don't want to be that guy. And if it, if it makes you feel better, or if it makes you feel more credible, credible, or if it makes you feel authentic, that's fine. But I'm going to call you out on your BS. For a while, my job was scripting for Rob Stone and Kate Abdo, <laughs> who, as she reminded us all recently, used to work at Fox right. Sports. Yes. And I was I had to hop back and forth between those two. And I always had to be mindful of using certain words when it was Rob and then using different words when it was Kate, uh, because certain words would sound unnatural coming out of Rob's mouth and vice versa. 
So it was an interesting sort of dynamic to my job. We used to kind of laugh about it. But yeah, you know, Rob is like you. He's very proud American soccer fan. And so, you know, get out of here with these, you know, pitches and. Uh, yeah. And again, like I said, it has it, it really has nothing to do with respect, ultimately. And if if it's what you want to do, I mean, I'm not going to die on this hill. If that's what you want to do, fine. But don't be surprised if we're hanging out and you start doing that and I start eye rolling and I call you out on this shit. It is interesting. A few years ago, I was remember watching some soccer show with a buddy of mine, American, who's not a soccer fan, but uh, the host referred to the scoreline of a game as 3-0. And my friend turned to me and said, that's wrong. Isn't it nil? And I had to explain to him, no, that's an expression. You can use it if you want, but that's not the right way to say it. <laughs> it is amazing how the British vernacular has sort of inserted itself into people's minds like that. Well, you know, listen, it's, uh, it, 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 like I said, I wear it on my sleeve and it's a, uh, a badge of honor. I call it soccer. And um, I will, until my dying days, call it soccer. And nothing that you can say can make me not call it soccer. Because it's soccer. All right. Anything before we go, Mossy? That's it. All right. Listen, thank you for reviewing and um, uh, rating and subscribing and downloading and doing all the different things, whether you're watching it on YouTube or listening on Spotify or Apple or all the different uh, places that you get this pod. We thank you for being a part of the State of the Union podcast uh, family. We will talk to you again uh, later on this week with yet another episode. And until then, and as always, my friends, size the day. <laughs>